Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you um, and he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church and we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Hey, hey, good morning, church. Welcome to Rest. I'm AB. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you had an awesome weekend this past weekend. I got stung by a wasp yesterday on the ear. Uh, I don't know how your Saturday went, but... uh, uh, so for a long time yesterday, Tristan, and I was walking and it looked like a car driving down the highway with one door open. I mean, it was swallowed up and everything uh, in, in my backyard. And so if you would, just for a second, imagine with me that you're walking out later today and you run into a backyard and it's a, a, a magnificent backyard that has some amazing, uh, captivating, beautiful Bermuda green or Kentucky bluegrass in this backyard. And it looks like someone has rolled out a, a really soft, just emerald uh, carpet. And you can tell right off of the bat that the owner of this backyard, they love their backyard because of the care that's put into the yard. You can see that it's, it's, it's been uh, meticulously manicured, that every blade has been cut to, to perfection in this backyard that, that you see. And it's even got those lines, Ted, those, uh, those really cool contrasting dark and light lines, patterns that are on it. And as you're walking and you see this beautiful backyard, uh, uh, a light breeze comes through and, you, and it hits your, your nostrils. Just sniff, sniff at your neighbor really quickly. Just give them a... It's, it's, like, it's like all of nature itself has been distilled into this one little corner of the world in this beautiful backyard. But as you continue walking along, you notice something in the, in the backyard on this tree that there's this sign on the tree. And the sign on the tree, it's really big, and it says these words, stay off the grass. Stay off the grass. Now, just between you and me, all of us, there's, no one's around, right? And you've got your flip-flops on, and you wonder what it might feel like for the grass to be on, on your feet under Neath and, and I don't know about you, but for me at least, there's this, there's this really peculiar thing that seems to rise up uh, in, in, inside of me sometimes. And there's this inexplicable desire to defy the sign just because the sign's there. And me, I want to electric slide across that grass, right? Anybody else with me on that? It's as if the, it's as if the sign has awakened this rebellious spirit 
that's deep inside of, of my heart. And, and honestly, if the sign wasn't even there, I might not even have had the inclination to go out onto the grass. I might have not entertained the thought. But once this prohibition has been set in front of you, it's a strange and it's almost an irresistible urge that you have inside of you. And look, maybe for you, it's not grass. Maybe, maybe you're at a museum and, and you see a sign that says no photography allowed, but you're just tempted to take out your phone and, and take that selfie. Or, or maybe you can relate to this one, you're, you're, you go to the movies and you know that the sign says no food or drink loud from the outside, right? But you, you bring some food or drink on the inside of your shirt and you're not pregnant, but then it looks like you're pregnant going in because you're sneaking snacks in. I know some of y'all have done that before, okay? Don't, don't judge me, I'm judging you, okay? Um, but there, there's this, there's this, this uh, it really reveals something about our, our, our human condition, church, that just because a law exists that we want to break it, and, and, and this is all of us, that we are just wicked. We are wicked by our very nature. And, and, and the truth is, the problem, it's not, it's not with the sign. The problem is with our hearts, our, our rebellious and renegade hearts that need some work done. That's the problem. And so too today, the problem that the Apostle Paul is going to bring up before us, it's not with the law of God, but it's with us. And, and just in the same way that is the sign on the tree, it, it highlights our inclination to transgress. What the law does is it shines a flashlight in on our hearts to show us who we really are. And so if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read a few verses today. And this is week number 23 of our verse by verse study in the book of Romans. And uh, if you haven't been with us, what we've done is we've taken uh, Romans, the 16 chapters, and we've broken it down into six buckets, say six. And today is the culmination of bucket number two. And bucket number two ran from 118 to 320. It was the wrath of God, and it's about the saints and the ain'ts. And uh, we said that there's only two groups of people on the entire planet, saints and ain'ts. And if you're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you ain't a saint. And you'll see this list up here. What Paul has done is he's broken down this group of ain'ts into some categories. And so this is the last time you'll see this, but I wanted to show it to you one more time. Uh, in 118 through 32, this was the pagans. And the pagans, they're just people that didn't have any faith. Uh, they, they rebel. 2, 1 through 16 was the, the moralist. These are the people who were relying on doing good or nice things and thought that was enough. Uh, 2, 17 through 3, 8, it was the religious guys, the religionists. And, and though they had a faith, they were relying on their self-righteousness and thought that that was enough. And then um, last week, Pastor Johan kind of uh, brought us into the everybody group uh, with 3, 9 through 18. So this was everybody Tell your neighbor, it's you too. Turn to your other neighbor that you don't like as much and say, hey, it's you too. This is everybody, chapter 3, 9 through 18. And uh, as we've been walking through this, as Cody opened it up, Pastor Cody, Paul, he's been anticipating in chapter 3, and he's been answering some objections that he knew the Jewish people would have going on. And, and so this could be that, that Paul is answering these objections that are fictitious. That, that could be a possibility. Uh, it could be that Paul's just doing a sort of a reconstruction of the arguments he would have faced as he was doing synagogue evangelism that he already seen. Or uh, a view that I just thought about this week that I really liked per, the perspective on was that perhaps this is the apostle Paul answering himself as Saul. 
Perhaps this is Paul answering Saul. Paul, the, the converted follower of Jesus, answering himself in the unconverted Pharisee who was Saul. Because if you'll remember, Saul would have had all of these objections and Paul would have remembered them really, really well. And so we're going to backtrack just a hair. Uh, we're going to start in verse 9 and read through 20, but we're just going to sit down on 19 and 20. Uh, do you love Jesus, this church? Are you ready to study his word this morning? Amen. Connor, are you ready? He's ready. All right. This is what it says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already uh, charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, and you're going to see a negative and positive affirmation here, none being the negative, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's in the mind. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. That's your deeds, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues used to deceive. The venom of snakes or asps is under their lips, um, or lisps, as Johan said. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and that's in word. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's in your body. In their past are ruin and misery. That's your emotions. In the way of peace, they have not known. That's our, that's our soul that, that we know you can't have true peace until you meet the person of peace who is Jesus. And then it, it kind of wraps up in their condition. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here's where we're hanging out today, though, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I don't know about you, but when, I, when you read through this, this sort of list on our condition, it's a, it's a pretty detailed and, and pretty depressing sort of list, and, and what the Apostle Paul has been doing in this multi-chapter argument um, against legalism, what's happening is that now this court case is sort of coming to a close, and, and as God's gavel drops, the verdict rendered, the finger pointing at me and at you is that you are guilty. You are guilty. And so, as Paul prosecutes and condemns the whole human race, this includes every unbeliever. This is for the Jew, this is for the Gentile, this is for the moralist, the critical moralist, this is for the religionist, this is for everyone because none have an excuse before God. In the presence of God, church, you and I, we have no defense apart from Christ. There is no defense we have apart from Jesus. And Paul, man, he has worked so hard in three chapters to beat this home over and over and over again. And, and he's saying that, hey, your works of obedience, your works of the law, uh, they're not gonna work and you're gonna stand condemned. And the common denominator to your sin, it's you. And the common denominator to my sin, it's me. You know, uh, Taylor Swift, she gets a lot of things wrong. But she got this one thing right when she said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. And that's uh, actually the main truth we're going to carry with us today as we look at verses 19 and 20, that you're the problem, it's you. The problem, church, is you. And so if you brush your teeth this morning, the person that was smiling back at you in the mirror that's your main 
enemy when it comes to your sin. Because the reality is, church, if, if, you're, if you're good, then, then you don't need God. If you're good, you don't need Jesus. If you're good, you don't need to change. But if you read the book of Romans correctly, what it's gonna help you realize is, is just how bad you are and just how good, good God really is. And it's gonna create inside of you this crisis that should send you running to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And so we'll pray together this morning and then look at this verdict that we're all in condemnation under of guilty. So let's pray. Jesus, help us to receive uh, Paul's words this morning, which are really your words through him. And he's laid a lot of groundwork, God, for, for us to be able to get to in a few weeks the, that, that great uh, Reformation doctrine of sola fide, that we need an alien righteousness, God, to, to, to be right. We need something outside of ourselves, and we're, we're excited to get there. But, but for this morning, Lord, help us to just sit in this verdict. God, help us to say that, that you are enough, just you, and, and not even the benefits package that you bring along with you, God, but just you. You are enough. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would teach us today. We rebuke Satan and demons from this place. And, and ultimately, God, as, as we exalt you, we, we pray it humbles ourselves. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first part of this is the totality. It is, uh, it's going to be about sin's two parts. It's about sin's universal grip on everything. Uh, and... Um, have you ever been under pressure before? Like been under a, a, lot, of, a lot of pressure? Well, for me, uh, my four-year-old Jordan, at, at every Friday at daycare, they have show and tell. And uh, he doesn't call daycare daycare. He calls it his friend's house. That's what we call it also, by the way. Um, but I forgot to bring his uh, Bubba Cheetah with him for show and tell a couple weeks ago. And I, I brought a, a, along with that some unintentional kind of pressure on myself, you know. But today in Paul's show and tell, what he's doing is he's adding an intentional sort of pressure. He's turning up the gas on the stove. He's putting his foot down further on the pedal and some intentional pressure that Paul's uh, bringing against them because they're still, even after all he's walked through, there's still some objection hanging around with the Jewish people where they are, they are going, okay, I believe that these Gentiles are reckless and godless and, sinless and sinful, but, but you can't be talking about me Paul, and so Paul still needs to, to, to drive this home. And he starts out giving them no option but to just sit under that pressure of the, the words of Scripture, starting in verse 19. This is what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. But, but what exactly, what exactly has the law said to us in this? Well, it's said to us that both Jew and Gentile, um, God is not a respecter of person in that regard, that we are both, that we are all utterly sinful. And, and it says that not only are we sinful, but you cannot keep the law on your own by yourself. It's impossible. That's what, that's what Paul's been laying out for us. And, and remember, as you look here in the text, the word that's used here first up as law, that word was nomos, say nomos. 
And nomos, it can mean a lot of different things about the law in context. It depends on how it's being used in the, in the sentence. But here, uh, in, in verse, the very first verse, verse, it's in reference to the whole of Scripture, okay? It's not specifically talking about the civil laws. It's not specifically talking about the ceremonial laws. It's not talking about the Decalogue, the Big Ten. It's not talking about the first five books. It's talking about the whole of Scripture, specifically with the Old Testament, and, and, and it says, to those who are under the law. Now, for those of you that are familiar with your Bible, you, pro- you probably already know this, but I'll share with you anyway. If you were just to flip over a couple of chapters to Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you're going to see Paul use the same sort of phrase again. And this is what it says. Uh, Sam won't have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Now, That instance there where Paul says this, it isn't the same context of what Paul says in verse 19, and so it's not the same concept. For you and I to understand this, maybe maybe perhaps a better translation of verse 19, look at it with me, it would be this, whatever the law says, it says to those who are in the law. And it's important for us to keep these two pieces distinct and separate right at the beginning uh, because Paul here is talking about those who are in the law, under the law, in the law. It's talking to the Jews. This is for those who have grown up attending synagogue. This is for those who have grown up memorizing uh, the Torah. This is for those who have been taught uh, the, the word from early on in a latter relation for us. This is for the people who grew up in the church. And Paul, he's going to group all of us Gentiles in here in just a minute, but this specifically here, he's talking about the Jewish law, the Jewish people, the law is speaking to them, that's who the law speaks to. Look at that word, the law speaks. The law, the word of God, it, it speaks but, but to all, but primarily or initially it speaks to those whom the, the law's primary audience is. And, and the Jews, they were the, the, the primary recipients of the law through Moses and the prophet. And what he's saying here in chapter 3, verse 19, is that the whole of Scripture, it speaks directly to this, this particular covenant community. But some of the Jews are in the background, and, and, and they're claiming that the law only condemns the Gentiles, and they see the law as this, uh, as this promise, as this guarantee for them because it contains the promises of God. And Paul's like, look, 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 look. I'm not asking you to judge yourself based off of some other writings. No, no, no. But in Pastor Johan's sermon, he's quoting Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Psalms. And Paul is going, your own writings say this. Own what the law says, accept this verdict. Because it's not just the blessings that are coming to you. It's not just the national election. It's also the condemnation. It's also the curses. It's also the warnings that are written down too. So this isn't just for those pagan uh, Gentiles, that nation over there, but this is for all. This is for you. And see, Paul, he knows that the Jews, that they, they, they agreed, hey, the, the Gentiles, they're, they're godless lawbreakers and they need the God of Israel. But many of them didn't see that they were also under the liability of God's judgment. And they, they see this, um, this covenant community that they have as sort of this Jewish hall pass to get them around the judgment of God. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but Paul, Paul what he's doing here, he's basically going, you guys are holding the stay off the grass sign 
talking about how you've received it and maintain it for everyone. And the whole time you're standing on top of the grass. He's saying, you're boasting about the law and you're the one who is breaking the law. You're the problem, it's you. Looking at the text, it says, because whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law. Or let me frame this up another way. Germans, the German people, they don't, they don't really care about laws that are applicable to Kentucky residents. They just don't. Because it doesn't hold any jurisdiction over them. And, and you may not know this, but in Kentucky, I looked it up. Uh, it was on Google, so it must be true. Um, you cannot marry the same person three times in the state of Kentucky. Uh, you, in Franklin County, you're not supposed to trade horses after dark. You may want to write that down, Johan. Um, and in Kentucky, you can't walk around with the ice cream cone in your pocket. Now, now of, of course, these laws, they're archaic and, and uh, they're, they're, they're odd and they're, they're not enforced or probably even known. And so we're not, we're not going to, you know, check your pockets today after service for frozen treats or anything. But what I'm getting at is that Kentucky law doesn't speak to Germans because it doesn't have any rule over them. However, when Paul speaks these words to the Jews, there's not a Jew with an earshot that's going to shake his head at this because the Jews are under God's law. The Jews definitely sit within its borders. And God's law, it has jurisdiction. It has authority over them. And so they too will be included in this judgment. I said this before because church, anytime we stand uh, apart from Christ, the judge, every time we are apart from him, we are guilty. And that's what the law says. And that's what the law, it speaks. And, 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 and so the law, the word of God, it, it, it speaks and it's said. And, and, and the law, it said the same thing back then as it was being written down by Tertius, spoken from the mouth of Paul in Corinth. It, it spoke then and it speaks now. Do you know that the word of God speaks? That it's always relevant like how that word there is not in the, in, the, in the past tense, but it's in the present, that it speaks and that it, that it says. And, and I just wonder this morning, when it comes to God's word speaking and saying, do you sit under his word in submission to it, in humility to it as he's spoken, letting it change your heart? Or do you, do you kind of hover over it, boasting condemnation for everybody else or just using it to try to prove your own points about something? If so, this word from Paul is for you today. That phrase Paul uses, under the law. Say under the law. I'm really weird. I don't know if you do this or not. This is a side note. Uh, but whenever I read these words sometimes, like these songs pop into my head as I'm reading the text, John. And um, so like under the law, I was like, I was hearing it to the tune of like under the sea with the little mermaid. Um, and like depravity, when I was thinking about that, I, every time, Cody, I'm thinking about John Mayer's uh, gravity. And so I'm going, depravity. Is working again. That's just that's okay. Just a side note there, Um, but under the law, this is a legal term. Okay, it's a legal term, and what it means is that you and I, we are all citizens under sin. 
that we have a, a, a sinnership, a spiritual passport, so to speak, that legally describes our citizenship. And Paul, from chapter 1, verse 18, up to now with 320, it's almost as if he's been walking you and I through the airport in, 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 at TSA, and there's this spiritual x-ray machine that we've been put through, and in the machine, we can see from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes that we are sinful, not only that, but this x-ray machine, it goes into, it sees the deep places, the law, it sees your heart, it sees your mind, it sees your motives, it sees your will and your emotions. And, and, and in the evidence it preaches is that we are totally corrupted by sin, that the problem is us. And, and we talked about this last week, it's called a total depravity. And a total depravity, it means that you and I, we are totally unable to save ourselves. And so we need someone to intervene outside of ourselves. We are totally guilty and we are trapped under sin's dominion. The Latin here of depravity means that we are day or down or thoroughly pravis. Meaning that me and you, that we're, we're a little crooked, we are, we are bent, we are perverse. And the idea of this isn't that we've just, you know, stubbed our toe. Have you just, it's not that we've stubbed our toe on the, the bed frame corner of sin, but it's that you and I, we have dive-bombed off into the well of sin and that our legs and back are broken and we have no way of getting out. This is total depravity. It's that all people everywhere are totally infected and affected by sin. And I'm not gonna get into a bunch of this, but it's almost as if, okay, I got a bottle of Fiji here, and if I were to, to pour just a, a, even a drop of polluted water into this water, what's it going to do? It's going to contaminate the whole thing. That's the, that's the way our, our sin nature is. And, and two things to highlight on this really, really quickly, we'll move on. Number one, the entire human race is on board of this shipwreck. Whenever you're born, you by nature have been giving a, a ticket onto the Titanic, Congratulations. Your first father, Adam, he bought the ticket for you. By nature, you are a sinner. In fact, if you were to, if you were, and there are no exemptions to this, if you were to spin the globe and put your finger on it anywhere, and if there's people there, you're going to find depravity. If you don't believe in depravity, uh, we'll invite you to our, our, our toddler terrorism room to serve one Sunday, right? And then you will believe, church. Um, but any, any play, there's no person that's basically a good person. And so, on one level, uh, depravity, total depravity means that everyone is corrupted by sin and everyone needs God to pardon us with his mercy. Secondarily, really quickly, it kind of goes from this wide-angle zoom lens to a, a, a close zoom in on, on us individually. We are depraved, right down to the control centers, the OS of who we are. We are not only sinners by nature, but we are sinners by choice. And when we sin, we are born with hearts that are sinful, they're evil. They're preloaded with this depravity. And the source of this is a dead heart. It's a dead soul. And so then naturally, everything that flows from that is dead also. In Romans 8, 7 through 8, it, re- it repeats this for us. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, uh, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so apart from Christ, you are hostile to God. You are an enemy of God. You don't submit to him. And in fact, you can't. So you war against God both by nature and in choice. We are all lost, but there are no degrees of lostness. Imagine with me for a minute 
that you get a free vacation. You fill, this would be a good idea. You fill out a visitor, first time visitor card, Ted, and we gave a vacation away. That, we'll write that down. We'll save it, right? Imagine that you got a free vacation though this morning. We said, hey, we're going to send you to Hawaii. You're like, hey, I like where this is going so far. And so you, 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 take, you go to, to Hawaii and you're there and everything's great, but in Hawaii a storm come, comes along and you find out that the only way for you to be safe is to go from Hawaii to Japan. Pull that map up for me, Grace, if it'll pop up. Yeah, there it is. And so this is 4,103 miles away. Now the bummer of this situation is that outside of the storm that's coming against you in Hawaii is that the only way for you to get from Hawaii to Japan is to swim. And so you and two other people, the three of you decide you're going to take the plunge and try to make it and swim from Hawaii all the way to Japan. And the first person that jumps in that's working for their safety and their, their rescue, well, they can't, they can't actually swim at all. This probably wasn't the best decision for them. And so whenever they get out of, out of where they can reach in the water, they just drown. Then there's you. Let's, let's give you the benefit of the doubt and say that you're an average swimmer. That you're, you know, you're, you're pretty good. You can, you can hold your own a little bit. And, and so if an Olympic-sized pool is 50 meters and, and down and back is 132 laps, 16 down and backs, that's almost a mile. Let, let's say that you can swim about a mile. And so that's what, that's, that's what you do. You go out and you swim and you wade the water and you work for about a mile, but then you drown too. Now, the third person that was with you that, that said they were going to try to go from, from Hawaii to Japan, let's pretend that they're a championship swimmer. Like, they're elite. They're in that, that, you know, that Michael Phelps kind of range. And so, even as, a, as an elite swimmer, they swim really strong for a really long time. But even after a couple of hours, they're, they're struggling and they're waiting and eventually they drown as well. Now, let me ask you in this scenario, amongst these three people, is anyone more drowned than the other? No. All of them are, have drowned because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all which one swam further because they are all still incredibly far off from, from Japan. They're not even close to Japan. And in this same way, the moralist, the religionist, the pagan, and the Jew, in of ourselves, none of us comes close to a righteous heart. Not even close to it. It's like swimming from Hawaii to Japan. All of us are equally lost. We are all drowning in this pool of depravity. Therefore, all are under sin. Uh, depravity is our death certificate. We are, the Bible speaks, as spiritual corpses before we meet Christ. And dead people don't make decisions. And church, this affects everything, every aspect of who we are. That's why behavior modification will never work. Just changing what you do, swimming harder, trying to swim faster, it will never, ever work. You have to be changed at the core being of who you are. And so the, the gospel isn't a picture of us being, you know, basically good people, just needing a, a nudge in the, in the right direction. But we are all intrinsically sinful and we need a rescue and a resuscitation and a regeneration that is outside of ourselves because you are the problem. Australian theologian Michael Byrd, he, he got it right when he said this, the point affirmed, 
In total depravity is that not a denial of this human capacity for good. Rather, it's an affirmation that sin totally permeates our intellect, our wills, and our hearts. There's not a cavern of your mind, no recess of soul, no room in your heart that isn't infected with this deadly virus of sin. John Piper adds to this saying, the the doctrine of total depravity has a huge part to play in humbling all ethnic groups and giving us a desperate camaraderie of condemnation. Man, this means that despite your best, most spirited, assisted efforts, each day for you will be marked and it will be marred by sin because none are righteous and all are guilty. And Paul moves on in the text 19b with the all, including everyone. He says, now we know whatever law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The phrase there, yeah, I underlined it. So that, right there, that, that, that's called a purpose clause. And whenever you see this in the scripture, you can, you can know that, bam, 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 it's about to tell you the purpose of what it's saying. And so this is a diving board for what we're diving into, okay? And, and the purpose there, if you read it, says that every mouth would be shut and that everyone would be held accountable before God. So let's look at the first part. So that every mouth may be stopped. This means at the verdict God renders, Every excuse is eliminated. Every mouth is silenced. There's nothing left to say back to God as he says that we, that you are guilty. Theologian R.C. Sproul, um, he, he told this story of a friend once who, who did his uh, PhD at Harvard in, in, in neurological studies. And that's just advanced studies of the function of the brain. And uh, Sproul's friend wrote that, that the human brain is more advanced than the most advanced computer system that there is because it records everything you've ever done, said, and, uh, and it gets recorded, everything we've spoken. And, and so Sproul and his friend, they were speaking about the day of God's judgment, you know, when that gavel drops. And this is what his friend said. He said, I think that in the last day, God's going to take our brain out of our head and put it on a table in his courtroom plug in a recorder and punch rewind and then we are going to have to sit there and listen to our brain replay everything we've ever done said and thought and in that moment the prosecuting attorney doesn't have to say a word man isn't that wild to think about (laughs) i mean so in this moment what benefit could there be in trying to argue with god what what benefit could there be in even trying to bring any sort of objection to the table as God already knows? And, and the same as in Daniel chapter five, we have been weighed, we have been measured, and we have been found wanting. See, every time when the New Testament describes the judgment of God, when that gavel drops and the verdict gets, comes down, and the defendant, that's us, when we're given the opportunity to speak, to present a defense, uh, the, the response every time, church, is this. Listen quietly. Nothing. It's crickets. So that every mouth, it says, it would be shut. Because we know, we, if we're honest, we know the problem is us. The problem is you. The problem is me. And there's nothing left to be said but for the verdict to be carried out. And so God's law acts as the great equalizer in this way. It's meant to murder your boasting. Because of Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and swam short of the glory of God. And then also if you look at James 2.10, it goes on to say, for whoever keeps the whole law, so it's talking about justification, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of how much of it? 
All of it. And so the effect of us knowing the law of God, it shouldn't create inside of you this attitude of, hey, I'm, I'm a really good law keeper. But instead, it, it should cause us to have our mouth silenced. That's side A to the track. Side B, when you flip it over, 19C. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. That word and, look at it, and. This is between shut mouth and accountability. This is a, a coordinated conjunction here between these two. And so what it's telling you and me is that these two things are not chronological, they're not hierarchical, but it's a dualistic purpose and both equal, equally carry the same amount of weight to them, that every mouth would be shut, but that also we would be held accountable. And I, I think that's a very interesting word for the Apostle Paul to use there, that we're held accountable to God. Because if you'll remember back, if you were with us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, went on to say this about God for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly seen ever since the beginning of things and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. So our mouths are shut and we are held accountable, which is a legal term also, because none of us have met the standard that's been set in front of us. And we've read this verse several times in the, in the course of Romans so far. But in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us the standard from verse 48, yeah. Here's the, here's the call of the law. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's the order. That's what you have to measure up to. And the only way to accomplish this church is for someone else to come who is perfect to be perfect in your place because God is going to justly uh, judge your sin against his law he will be fair and, and Paul he's worked really hard in one through three to show that he's impartial that he's faithful he's faithful in mercy but he's also faithful in his wrath and he will judge rightly by the law, which no man, Jew or Gentile, uh, can, can keep. We are sinners, and the law can't save us because we can't keep it. And so here's the picture, okay? You're, you're standing before God one day. All of the evidence is laid out on the table. The sentencing happens, and God goes, hey, hey, would, would you like to say anything? Is there anything you want to say for yourself in your defense? And there's nothing. Nothing. That's to be said. No excuses, no explanations. There's not going to be a retrial of this. You are wholly accountable to God, left speechless and guilty because you are the problem. And this is some really bad news. But Paul, he, he wasn't being mean. He didn't have like a bad day and then run through all of this where it just flowed out. It's not from a heart of hate. The Apostle Paul, this comes from an eternal heart of love. He knows, he knows that until you see just how guilty that you really are and how much you need Christ, then you are not ready to receive the gospel and its benefits. So Paul relentlessly beats this home. We are guilty in need of God's grace. And here's the second portion. It'll be faster. In totality, this is the law's universal verdict. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge 
of sin. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Why is this? It's simple, because none of us can perfectly keep the law. And, And this is probably the clearest example, if not one of the clearest examples in the whole scripture that, that, that defends and works against a works-based righteousness. That, look, you can't earn your salvation. You can't contribute to it. You can't even leave the tip at the table. There's nothing that you can do in of yourself to make what's wrong with you right. No good work will ever be good enough. And so Paul, he puts this bluntly. He says, by obedience to the law, by works of the law, your religious mechanisms, it's just not possible to be justified. Look at that word justified in your scripture. And, and, and Pastor Cody's going to unpack this big time in a few weeks. But justified simply, it's an easy way to think about it. It's, it's just as if I've never sinned. That when God looks at us, it, he, he sees us through the lens of his son Jesus. And, and, and so I'll just say this about that. For, for the religious person, for the works-based religious person, this should be the scariest verse in the entire Bible for you. So this is for every Catholic, every COC, every Mormon, every Jehovah's Witness, every Muslim, every moralist who believes that their obedience keeps them saved or puts some sort of down payment on or adds anything of salvific pertinence to it. It should really leave them crying out for mercy because this is an impossible and it's a foolish effort. Church, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion to a degree in the world. And you've heard this before. I'm sure you have. It's not about, the gospel is not about do, it's about done, right? It's about what what Christ has already done on on our behalf. And there's a lot of verses, I won't read these, but I'll just throw them out to you. Galatians 2.16, Ephesians 2.8-9, Titus 3.5-7, that talk about gospel mechanics of justification. But what happens sometimes is that with you and I and our sinful condition is that sometimes our pride rises up inside of us and it shames us to believe that our power is enough. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna work harder. As long as I rely on myself for growth, here's what's gonna happen. You're always gonna find yourself in frustration and in perpetual disappointment at every single turn. Because I can't grow on my own. Like, look, you, I, can, I can try to pray for two hours a day. I can, I can read my Bible from cover to cover. I can be a faithful member of a church. But if Christ isn't at work in me and in you, you are toast. You're toast. <laughs> and we, we think, Carl, we think that, that Christian maturity is somehow about getting to a point where I can do this all by my own, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Because maturity is realizing how dependent you and I truly are on Jesus. And so self-reliance, it's always self-sabotage. Self-reliance when it comes to works is always self-sabotage. And so Paul says, look, the whole world, it's in need of justification. Without Christ as the, the headship, the figurehead, the representative of your righteousness, we are guilty. The problem is you. And wrapping up here, verse 20, part B, this is one of the main purposes of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's through the law that you and I become conscious of our sin. The end of 20 here, this is the, this is the apotheosis. This is the, the crown, the pinnacle 
of the argument that Paul started way, way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And he's saying, here's what the law brings with it. it. It brings the knowledge of sin, but it can't bring the forgiveness of it. The law brings the knowledge of sin, but it doesn't tote the forgiveness with it. Paul knows that the most indispensable thing when it comes to reading the law, to reading the word of God, is that when we read it, you and I must see our sin. We must see and understand our sin. And because if we read the scripture without seeing our sin against it, measuring it up, not up against our neighbor, but up against it, then we will read it wrongly every time. And, and remember, the Apostle Paul, he's a guy, he's a guy that knows the law. He's been on the inner circle of the law. He fully understands what the law standard is. And he's saying, for you to miss your sin is to miss the law. Luther said to this, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it sheweth unto them their sin, and that by knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken by this means, may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed who is Christ. Church, the law testifies to you and to me of our sinnership. And what it does is it serves as a mirror and a microscope. The law serves as a mirror and a microscope that Envision with me that you're standing in a room that's full of those mirrors. It's those full body mirrors. And so you can see the reflection on on everything, on every side. And, you know, I I don't like mirrors very much because they're too honest, right? They're unforgivingly honest. And what the mirror does is it, it reveals to you every, it reflects back to you every blemish and every flaw this, 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 at least on the outside. And so you, you look at this and you think, well, this can't be right. I need, I need to take a closer look. And so you move from the, your view of the mirror to the microscope. And under the microscope is, is, is a, one of those glass uh, vial things that, that has your DNA on top of it. And so you, you zoom in to get a, a closer look, to get more clarity. And what it does is it reveals an, a hidden world of, of intricate structures that's full of concealed flaws. And this is what the law of God does, church. It, it serves as our mirror, making us severely aware of our own sinfulness, accurately reflecting what Christ Jesus has done that you and I could never do. And, and as you dig into the law of God, it serves as a, as, as a microscope because it not only judges the outside of you and me, but it zooms into the deep places, into our motives, into our will and our mind and, and, our, and our hearts. And, and it shows us and magnifies in great depth who Christ is and who we are not. And both of those realities make us aware and and create and show us our need for forgiveness and for redemption because across the board, you can see no matter where you look, you are guilty. You are the problem. And so my question for you this morning is, are you willing to examine yourself thoroughly against the law, against the word, because if you do, what's going to happen is it, it's, it, it's going to close your mouth. It's going to bring accountability to you. And it was given, the law was given 
In other words, to bring every person into repentance. And the reason that it can't justify us is the same reason, the the function that it was given. It's meant to expose, it's meant to condemn our sin. And the reason it condemns us is because we constantly break it. So what's the conclusion of this whole verdict? Church, write this down. Text it to your friends. Save it in your notes. On your phone. Hang it on your fridge. A low view of the law always leads to legalism. A low view of the law is always going to lead to legalism. We cannot, when we cannot grasp that the impossibility of the demand that the law carries, if we are trusting in, in our own ability to earn our salvation by what we do, and we go, okay, I can, I can do this, I got this, I just need to swim harder and work faster and work harder. If you believe that you can meet the standard of God's law of be perfect, then you don't understand the law. Because this isn't the law. It's not just some rock in your shoe that's annoying. This, the, the law is a boulder the size of a city that's set on your back. It's not a checklist we keep. It's a benchmark we fail. And if you truly examine yourself through it and it reflects back, back to you, no matter how loyal or kind or thoughtful or generous or loving you might be, your only response can be, I'm a sinner. I've got nothing to say. There's no defense I can offer. I am in desperate, desperate trouble. Paul tells us about the ability of the law through our inability to carry it out. The law, in this sense, it becomes... It becomes like a straight edge to show you and I how crooked we really are. And it's not law that opposes grace, but it works as a right hand and left hand with grace. R.C. Sproul says of that, said the law of this, he says, it's like a sheepdog that continually drives the sheep back into the fold of grace when we stray out into the wilderness of works. Nicely, Martin Luther, he said, it's impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that in his works, that his works are not his, but God's. The problem is you. Church, for us, this is a moment of deflation. This is a a camaraderie of condemnation, as Piper said. (laughs) Because it's only at the cross that you and I, that we can simultaneously be, be deflated and filled with delight in the glory of God. And it's only then where we can boast. And when we boast, it's only in the Lord. 